Right now on Tech Radio. To infinity and beyond. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 1006, where this week we're talking about Bitcoin going to the moon. Doctor Who's TARDIS is going to the moon. And even rideshare firm Lyft are going to the moon, albeit by accident. We'll also be chatting with Gillian Whelan from Imagine about when bank apps go bad. Let's go for it. From techcentral.ie, this is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. I'm Dusty. Joining me as always is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, a big week and it's kind of all around the moon. Oh, come on. I mean, this is a greatest hits week for you already. I mean, it's, <laughs> 2024 is all downhill from here as far as you're concerned. <laughs> kind of. There's a couple of little stories. Uh, one is when Bitcoin does really well, when it explodes in value, they call it, you know, Bitcoin going to the moon. So I'll tell you about that and what's happening and why it's happening in a few minutes. But the other really big story is to do with the actual moon. The actual moon. Yeah. And on Thursday morning this week, SpaceX launched IM1 project heading for the moon. Okay. Can I just ask? Yes. Are SpaceX over the whole thing or is this another company piggybacking on SpaceX? Because that's more interesting to me. Okay, this is a company who wants to go to the moon. So basically, they've employed SpaceX to get them into space. Oh, okay. It's kind of like you and I would get a bus into town. Right. I'm I'm interested now because this opens up a world of possibility for companies that are working on things that might be good in the space economy, Space 4.0. An awful lot of companies working in Ireland. So if there's a successful, you know, a successful your orbital mission, let alone a lunar yeah. mission, uh, because yeah. we have had a couple of uh, attempts at a lunar mission in the recent past. Yeah. haven't gone very well. Um, so how is this one actually doing? And, and what is it meant to do? Well, so far, the... Um I keep wanting to call it a satellite, but that's not the the right word. Uh, Basically, what they're doing is they're sending this unit, uh, which is basically the size of a telephone box. All right. So immediately when I think of telephone box in space, you think of the TARDIS. There you go. Doctor Who. Uh, That's what they're sending to the moon. All right. They're planning on landing it near the South Pole. Now, there's a reason for doing that. All of the moon landings that we would have seen black and white pictures of with Neil Armstrong and whatever, were all kind of around the equator where it gets really hot, okay, during the day and really cold during the night. Uh, and it's very hard for water to exist there. Whereas at the poles, they're, they're just at a more constant temperature. And it's quite possible that there is a whole load of frozen water sitting on the moon. And that's what this IM mission is looking for. And here is why, right? Mm-hmm. If we find water on the moon, that could change like everything. Do you know what the chemical symbol for water is? Yeah, it's H2O. H2O. Hydrogen and oxygen. All right. Mm-hmm. So water you can use to drink. Okay. And it's so important for our survival. But if you split that, okay, into hydrogen and oxygen, now with that water, you can use the oxygen to breathe and you can use the hydrogen to use as fuel to get you off the moon and back home to earth. Wow. And also yeah. to power your facilities and whatever it is that you're going to be doing uh, uh, on the moon. 
So this whole thing of like finding lunar ice is is crucial. And in the back of my mind, I mean, it sounds great, private company going to the moon, they're going to land at the South Pole and see if there's any water there, blah, 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 blah. Because they're a private company, the first thing they're going to do is they go, our water, we found it. Oh, you know. You oh, know yeah. it. Hey, anybody want to buy some moon water? <laughs> stick a flag in it. Actually, this is something stick a flag in it. we talked about with, uh, I think it was Niall Smith from the Black Rock Observatory years ago. Um, mm. He was talking about mining rights on comets and, and things like that. And I was like, do you know what? This this is going, it turned out it's the much closer future than I had imagined. So we're we're potentially going to see a land grab on the moon. It, it could very well happen. Uh, and, it's, and it's mad. I was watching, do you know what I watched the other night? I uh, watched Once a Year is Contact with uh, Jodie mm, Foster. Your favourite movie. Oh, oh, without a doubt. Okay. Uh, and John Hurt plays the role of a, a, a mad multi-billionaire. Okay. Now, basically, John Hurt in this movie, Contact, is Elon Musk. Right. All right. And that movie was made in the early 90s. At least a decade before Elon Musk uh, became a multimillionaire with PayPal, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just think it's funny how you see fiction becoming fact. And, and I mean, we're just going to start going into Star Trek now in a second. <laughs> and then after that, Star Wars or whatever else. <laughs> which, which reminds me, Dune uh, Part 2 is coming. Oh, Woo! Yes, yes. <laughs> Wasn't Part 1 brilliant? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And do you know what I loved about Dune Part 1 was that I just, I kind of, I watched it on the TV and I just, <sighs> yeah, yeah, whatever. We'll just see what it's like. And then at the end of it, jaw dropped. It was kind of, oh, my God, that was amazing. So this time oh. around, it's definitely... Going to the movies. Go oh, the going to the movies. I'm going to IMAX again. I there saw I saw the first one in IMAX and I was like, yep, good choice. Ah, I see. Mm, maybe. I've done IMAX once or twice and uh, mm, I don't know. Anyways, listen, we're d- d- distracting ourselves from mm. the news of the, the moon mission. Of the moon. So uh, Intuitive Machines, anyway, is the name of the company. That's why it's called IM1, is the mission. It's going to land on the moon. It's expected to land on the moon next Thursday. 22nd right. of February, I think. So keep that uh, in, in, in your diary and keep an eye on the on the news. You'd probably be able to watch it live on YouTube because that's the, so the world that we live in these it, days. Hopefully it like lands instead of crashes. And or, goes, actually, or lands upside down or something like that, which uh, is what the most recent one did. Like, you know, so... Uh, so and and can actually send and receive signals and telemetry. Here we go. So that's the uh, first thing is, are they going to make it? Are they going to land? Will it work? And then will they find water? If they find water, game changer. Otter, game changer. The other moon story this week is Bitcoin. Now, I know that you have... Didn't you tell me when we started the podcast there back in 19 or what was it, 2006 or something like that, that you'd spent a tenner and bought a half dozen Bitcoins and you'll just see what happens with them? Did you keep them? Did you lose the code? I had a Pentium laptop. (laughs) Bitcoin, just to kind of give you uh, an example, this time last year, uh, one Bitcoin was worth around 20,000 euro. Mm Mm-hmm. About a week ago, uh, or two weeks ago, Bitcoin was worth 38,000 euro a coin, all right? Mm. And uh, at the end of this week, it's sitting at just around 50,000 euro a coin. Yeah. So it's just gone up all of a sudden. Is anyone actually buying anything with this stuff, or is it just North Korean criminals? 
I'm so yes, cynical. That was so no, mean. Th- 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 it may be cynical of you, but no, nobody is buying it because I believe 70% of Bitcoin is just sitting there. It's just people holding onto it. Okay? Yeah. It's, it's a store of value. That's what it's being being used as, okay? Uh, so 70% of that, you're right about the, the Koreans. <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue with that. Uh, that was a story, and I believe it might be on techcentral.ie if you want to uh, mm-hmm. look it up. Um, but who is buying it? Who's using it? Uh, it's definitely being bought, all right, because there was a couple of new uh, ETFs, I think they're called exchange-traded funds, all right, which is essentially a mechanism on the stock market, and the stock market is kind of an official way of blah, 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 blah. And they've just introduced nine new ETFs on the stock market where you can go in and you can buy uh, Bitcoin or you can buy these funds that are uh, interested in buying up various bits of, of, of coin and stuff. Like okay, that, so right? is this is this kind of basically uh, like a trading bubble or something like that? It's, it is this, like a sandbox. Up, up until now, you see, if you are a huge pension fund or any kind of a, an institutional investor, if you wanted to invest in Bitcoin, you would have to do so directly. Mm. All right. Whereas they much prefer using these ETFs because an ETF will not necessarily be just one coin. It'll have Bitcoin, it'll have Serrano, it'll have blah, 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 have several different things uh, in there. So you're kind of uh, hedging your bets, if you like. Right. Um, you, you're not putting all of your money on one horse. You're putting it on a collection of horses, if you like. All right. Mm. And they like that. Also, the fact that it is working on the stock exchange means there's certain rules and regulations and it's a way of buying it. And da, 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 it's a bit more official. All right. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the institutional investors who've got billions and billions and billions are now rushing in to get themselves a little bit of that coin action. Ah, because because it's in like a regulated environment. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. So that's one thing that's driving the price. Another thing is that inflation is not going down. So mm. people are holding on to Bitcoin as a, a hedge against inflation, which is what these investors do. Also, uh, we have a huge thing coming up in the middle of April, and it's called a Bitcoin halving, Okay. And Bitcoin is designed so that every four years or so, uh, the amount of Bitcoin that you can mine will have, okay? Mm. So at the moment, it's a maximum of 900 coins a day can be generated. However it right. is to generate it, look at it as, as digging gold out of the ground, right? You can take 900 tons of gold out of the ground at the moment, okay? It's 900 coins a day. In the middle of April, the algorithm is going to change or whatever way it's going to change. And that's going to have, and it's called a halving, which means that only 450 coins maximum can be created a day. Okay. And bear in mind that there's a ceiling on how much Bitcoin can be generated in the first place. And, you know, Bitcoin mining is competitive as well. So it's all based on solving a complex mathematical problem, which is why we have these server farms full of Bitcoin miners. Because they're all competing to mine the coins. Exactly. And when there's less and less of them, the value goes up and up and up. Mm. So that's what's happening with Bitcoin at the moment in that the value is going. And it's kind of interesting in that. I wonder if it's going to be a case of it's going to skyrocket up to 50 or whatever, maybe even 60. And then it'll fall off again after the excitement dies down. Or uh, there's, I've seen several articles of people who are being very bullish and they're saying that Bitcoin in a number of years will be worth like a million per coin. 
that's a lot of nonsense. But I mean, if you look at what uh, crypto has been through over the last few years, we've had mm-hmm. the FTX exchange. Uh, we've had Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, we have, sorry, BT Bitcoin exchange. Um, mm-hmm. We've also had the crypto winter, mm-hmm. which happened when uh, Luna collapsed. Um, and we had uh, Rachel Petheron explaining everything about it. So yep. go back and find our, our show there. She went through things uh, in a lot more detail than either of us could hope to. Um, so, you know, you buy into something, there's an awful lot of volatility built into it. Mm-hmm. But if you have an ETF there, uh, that gets rid of an awful lot of the volatility. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. But anyway, if, you, if you're seeing stories about Bitcoin uh, uh, going to the moon, that is why it is happening uh, at, at the moment. We'd be interested to see what happens with it this year. Uh, the uh, of the other story, just kind of on finance, and it's a tech company, I suppose, because it's Lyft. It's the ride-sharing app and stuff like that. Uh, funny story with that during the week. They were making a presentation, their report about how things are going, blah, 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 blah. And uh, somebody said uh, the increase is 0.5%. And they made a very innocent typo and instead of putting 0.5% they put in 5.0%. Very (laughs) different figure. Very (laughs) different. Very different figure altogether. So they released this report after trading all right uh, and investors went bananas because you know they went 5% oh my god as soon as the market opens tomorrow morning that thing is going to shoot up in price so they were doing all this kind of after hours trading Mm. Um, and somebody fortunately Lyft realised very quickly and went what? Uh, and then corrected it. Uh, so by the time that the, the markets actually opened up the next morning, official trading was a little bit more reasonable. A bit more uh, subdued. A little, well, I wouldn't say more subdued, but I mean, they closed on Tuesday $12, roughly a share. Uh, and they opened Wednesday morning after all this tobacco at uh, $16 a share. But I think at one stage overnight, they were trading it for maybe 20 or early 20s, you know? Oh. so. Boy. No, but that's, you see, I can't take that because that, that's gambling. I mean, that's literally sitting at your computer going, I think this is going to go up or go down. To, uh, mm. Goodness knows. That, that's, that's in a, a world of typos, story. that's a good one. If you're going to mess yeah. up, do it properly. I think we need to say congratulations on Tech Radio to John Kelleher, Professor John D. Kelleher, to give him his full Mm. title, who's been named as the director of the ADAPT Research Centre. Now, ADAPT plays a hugely important part in Irish tech, and we do a lot of stuff with them. Uh, Where where do you see them in the the market, as it were? Uh, We surely do, yeah. Uh, ADAPT is the centre into digital content and and virtual and augmented reality that, mm. that's been added to their to their remit over the few years. John Kelleher is basically the man who wrote the book on AI. And I'm not making that up. Like nope. we've interviewed him a few times over the years. I chatted to him myself a couple of years ago. Um, you know, we had a, a very nice conversation. And then afterwards he told me everything I didn't know. And I think my head exploded. I think I blew a gasket. Um, And then last year, we carried an interview with himself and the former head of ADAPT, uh, Vinnie Wade. Yes. uh, About AI. Uh, And again, that's from ADAPT's own podcast, which is uh, also really good, uh, Mm. really worth listening to. Um, Hosted by Claire O'Connell, if uh, memory serves. Um, And now uh, Professor Callagher is is the man at the top. And, you know... No better man for the job. He's incredibly um, knowledgeable, incredibly well regarded in uh, academic fields. Yeah. Um, as I said, he is the guy who wrote the book on this stuff. 
And very well spoken as well. I mean, that episode that you were saying that we featured on Tech Radio, I think it was around Christmas or during the summer, I think, last year. Uh, mm. Look it up. Yeah. Anyway. It'll be in there in your podcast app. Uh, the pair of them, uh, Vinny and John, both explained AI so brilliantly. Do you know what I mean? It's because you can get really carried away and very academic about it. They didn't. They really mm. brought it down to the basics of what it was and they explained it so clearly. So absolutely have a listen to that episode. Uh, the Adapt Centre do play an enormous role in what's happening with AI in Ireland. If you want to find out what uh, John is going to do with the Adapt Centre in his time and stuff like that, you can check out. Uh, they have a podcast which is on YouTube, uh, Apple and Spotify as well. Just search for Adapt Radio. and uh, They have an interview with him talking about uh, the centre and making AI accessible to everybody and also for future plans as well. Final uh, news story for this week uh, and it's copyright, another one of our favourite little things to look at, especially in this digital world where all kinds of things can go on. What kind of skullduggery has ChatGPT been accused of? Well, you remember that um, a number of authors raised uh, complaints of copyright infringement against uh, OpenAI for the training of ChatGPT because people mm. were pushing in uh, questions like, you know, what is the plot of X? And mm. getting back passages of text that were suspiciously accurate uh, or suspiciously close to the source. Mm. So you had authors like Sarah Silverman, uh, the horror writer Paul Tremblay in particular, mm. um, there's a couple of people involved in certainly criticizing OpenAI over this. I think Stephen King was none too impressed, but I'm not sure if he's part of the legal action. But anyway, a copyright infringement case was taken against OpenAI. Uh, a judge in California has tossed it, um, said, look, just because you're training something on something uh, doesn't mean that they're actually looking to do the same thing with it. Um so I guess uh, it's almost like um, transformative use, I suppose, which is which is protected under under copyright. Uh, if you quote something on a TV show, for example, you don't necessarily have to pay the person from the thing you quoted from. And the judge has kind of taken a, a similar view of large language models. It's like this thing wasn't put together to pirate your work. Um, it was fed your work, but it was fed, you know, everybody else's also. Mm. Um, there's no, there's no claim here. You didn't lose any money because of this. I don't know, Dusty, what do you think? It's a really interesting case. Now, I can understand why the judge would have thrown out unfair business practices or unjust enrichment and, and terms like that, because you're right, um, OpenAI are not reselling copyrighted work. Um, they're not even making available large portions of, the, of that work. They are, as you say, if you quote something on a TV show when you want to talk about blah, 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 uh, that's allowed. Um, but what he has left in, and I think that they might go ahead with it, is that it is a copyright infringement because OpenAI have said that they did use these and other books, millions of them, uh, without permission to train its LLM. Mm. Do you, th do you think that was like saying authors, the quiet part out loud? <laughs> I want you see do you know what I thought of I kind of went yeah yeah what are they giving out about should we do this with kids 
all the time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Read these books, soak in the information, uh, and and off you go and live your life. But the yep. thing is, you've got to buy the books for the kids to learn on. Well, and OpenAI didn't buy the books to train its LM, LLM large language model on. Mm. Yeah. So, mm, I, yeah, I don't know. If the, I think OpenAI are definitely benefiting from being able to use all of these millions of sources, but could you really pick on one? Could you say that Sarah Silverman's book specifically <laughs> made OpenAI, blah, blah, blah? Mm. I don't know. Interesting. Anyway, we we keep an eye. I think they have uh, what until next month or something like that too. Yeah, the the actual copyright bit is still um, is still outstanding. But as you said, the business practices and the unjust enrichment suits have been have been tossed. So uh, and this is a court in California, by the way. So it's not the last word on the matter by any stretch, but oh, uh, yeah. certainly shots fired. Excellent. All right. Well, listen, we leave the uh, news at uh, there for uh, this week. As always, Noel, thanks for keeping us up to speed. From TechCentral.ie, this is the award-nominated Tech Radio from TechCentral.ie. 2024 is going to be a great year and one where we think you should win an award in recognition of your contribution to the tech industry. The Tech Excellence Awards are in full swing at the moment, recognising the brilliant minds and groundbreaking advancements that shape the future of tech here in Ireland. There's categories for everything. You could enter for best person, your best company, best team. Uh, There's a best project uh, category if you're just working on one particular thing. And because there's no cost to enter, free. Why not? Nominate yourself for an award or nominate someone that you think deserves an award. The uh, closing date for entries is just after Easter and there's a full-on black tie ceremony in May. That's the Tech Excellence Awards with the full details on our front page of our website at techcentral.ie. And good luck. Banks and banking make up a massive part of our lives. From opening accounts in person to managing via an app online, we put an enormous amount of trust in their ability to do their job. However, when they don't, the results can be catastrophic, not just for your wealth, but also for your health. As always, EU lawmakers are on the case with the Digital Operational Resilience Act, or DORA for short. Gillian Whelan is Managing Director and Country Manager for Ireland IT Consultancy Imagine. She spoke with Niall Kissinger in the week about DORA and how it works. Gillian, we're well used to EU regulations at this point. I mean, we've had GDPR hanging over our heads now for, what, more than five years at this stage. We've got the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act starting to come into force. And we're appreciating what that's doing for us. We have the AI Act, which people are you know, at least familiar with what it's about, if not the details. So tell us a little bit about the Digital Operational Resilience Act and you know, what does it actually mean to the average person on the street? Yeah, so I think the key words are actually in the Act, so digital operational resilience. And when we talk about operational resilience, what we're talking about is the ability for a financial institution to recover quickly from any incidents in relation to ICT, so information communication technology. So um, DORA is intended to be a legislative framework designed to enhance how banks, ICT processes and systems 
operate so that if they encounter any significant issues, they can recover quickly, which will minimise the impact on the economy. But it's also intended to be prepared in advance and to actually identify what could go wrong and prevent those things from happening. I suppose you could look at it in a sense of uh, this being GDPR's nerdier brother, really, in some respects. Uh, But it does go to that point of your data is there or your financial information is there. uh, It's potentially at risk. So uh, where did this development come from? Is it a renewed uh, approach to look at infrastructure and hardware, bearing in mind that a lot of these institutions have been around for years and years and years. And in as much as they have very large IT budgets, they probably have a lot of dated or or legacy uh, infrastructure as well. Yeah, 100%. So for sure, Niall, Dora definitely is concerned with data protection, but that's only one element of it. So obviously, if there is an issue in a financial institution in relation to ICT, it can lead to a data breach. And absolutely, GDPR tries to um, protect consumers um, from the, the the consequences of what might happen if their data gets into the wrong hands. But DORA is more far-reaching than that. So yes, making sure that we don't end up with data breaches as part of it, but it's also about ensuring that we don't end up with ICT failures that lead to bigger problems, which can have a huge impact on the economy, but also on individuals and on the average person on the street. So from the the average person on the street, I guess, if you think about how important the banking system is to that person, it's important for our everyday lives in terms of processing payments, purchasing goods in the grocery store, and if you're going to purchase a house, you know, the money has to transfer from one bank to another. If you're in a hospital, you have to pay medical bills. Um, the, the government um, uses the banking system to uh, pay out social welfare payments. So these are things that people need to survive day to day. And if the banking system was to collapse because of a failure in its ICT systems and processes, that would lead to huge problems for the everyday person um, in their everyday lives. And I suppose all we need to do is probably pay back to it's Well, it's over 10 years ago now, but back in, I think it was 2012, we had um, Royal Bank of Scotland and at the time, obviously, Ulster Bank were, were part of Royal Bank of Scotland. And we had a huge um, ICT issue back, be- back then where there was a loss of... Um, they lost ability to process payments. And it was actually down to they were upgrading and um, their batch processing schedule, something that should have been a fairly straightforward IT change, but that caused their whole payment system to go down. And if I just look at the impact of Ulster Bank customers in Ireland, firstly, there was 600,000 people affected for almost two months. And there was 30,000 payments, 30,000 people who should have been in receipt of social welfare payments, who were very much reliant on that, and they wouldn't have received that. And as I said, you would have had um, bills that were due to be paid, being late, people not getting their wages, people not having the ability to take money out, important um, transfers, intercompany transfers, important 
transfers of money from individuals to other individuals, that couldn't happen. And for some people, that went up for months. So it had a huge impact on individuals. And Dora is really trying to establish a framework that prevents situations like that occurring in the future, which not only impact individuals day to day, but can have a huge impact on economy in general. One imagines that, okay, if something uh, in the, on the scale of what you've just described there happens, you know, it's, it's unfortunate and it inconveniences people and it raises questions internally, but that's not enough to force law on its own. So what else have we seen happen that has made the EU sit up and go, do you know what? We've got a serious transparency issue here. It's industry wide. We have to step in and create a standard. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'll focus on the Irish market uh, more so than the international market. But I mean, only just in late uh, 2021, Bank of Ireland received a huge fine of, um, I think it was 24 and a half million. And they were, they were fined that because um, an investigation had determined that there was significant IT system challenges that had been left undealt with or maybe not dealt with appropriately over a very prolonged period. So from 2008 to 2019. And thankfully, that didn't cause any significant issues to customers. But had it had some of those challenges in their systems and processes led to issues, millions of customers would have been affected. And we also had only very recently, back in August of last year, was a lot, a lot of talk in the media where customers were able to go to the ATM and withdraw money that wasn't in their bank account. And whilst that might sound fantastic at the time, Niall, and um, I'm sure lots of people got caught up in there, oh my God, I can take all this money out. I had to keep the money, so you have to repay that money. And for lots of customers, their accounts ended up being overdrawn as a result and that money has to be paid back. And that adds to obviously lots of pressures and and. Um, no, I, I think most people don't want to be in that situation. So we have seen repeated cases of where very well established financial financial institutions that you'd expect to have very robust ICT systems and processes, in fact, haven't. And I think that's why across Europe, it's being decided that, no, no, we need an act that standardizes and harmonizes lots of other probably legislation and standards that were already in place. So again, if I, maybe this is actually a positive about Dora, it's not all brand new. So that's that's the good news, I guess, for, for financial institutions. This isn't all brand new. They don't have to make a huge amount of changes. And we can talk a little bit about what Dora means for banks in a second. But if, if we just look at Ireland, the Central Bank of Ireland already has guidance and standards in relation to outsourcing operational resilience, IT and cyber risk and so on. So there is already guidelines and standards um, and other European countries have their own versions of guidelines and standards. But what DOOR is going to do is harmonise, standardise and mandate standards that all financial institutions have to adhere to. So when we're talking at particular standards, I mean, I, I, I think we all remember the, the free money moment, uh, which everybody thought was ultimately, um, you know, uh, hilarious and perhaps a bit tragic uh, at the same time. So when Europe steps in to have a look at what's going on, and, what, and you say that an awful lot of this is uh, it's already out there in the ether and this is all about standardization, what 
do the banks actually have to do to bring themselves up to code? Is it again that point of transparency to show, look, this is what we're doing? Or is it about Europe going, well, here's the baseline here. Here is, you know, the minimum viable product for your for your infrastructure and you have to adhere to it. I won't go into massive amount of technical detail worries, but I think there's pro- the best way of explaining it, I suppose, is that there are, I suppose, four streams to this. So the first stream is that banks have to be able to map and identify what are their critical ICT functions. So critical means that if that function failed, it would have a significant impact on the economy and on individuals. So a lot of a lot of financial institutions would probably believe, oh, I already know what my critical processes are, but there's there's a need now to to do a proper review and um, to document that and to do that in under the remit of criteria, standard criteria. So that's one thing that they have to do, um, but it won't be completely brand new. The second thing I guess that uh, financial institutions have to do is they have to look at ICT risk management specifically. So they have to identify, they have to assess, and they have to mitigate risks that are associated with their critical functions. Okay, so that, that involves then stress testing and it also involves contingency planning. So that's really important for the customer because the more stress testing that a financial institution does and the more contingency planning that they do, the less impact there is on the consumer in the future, the less likely that we can't make critical payments day to day, the less likely that we're going to be delayed to be paid from our employer, we're all going to get stranded abroad because we can't pay for our flights home, etc. So that's number two. So the risk management part is a very important part. And again, it's going to be completed in a much more structured, find way. It can't be just go up and do what risk management, whatever way you feel like doing it. It needs to be done under certain criteria and under an agreed framework. Uh, the third stream then of DORA is around third party dependencies. And this one's really interesting, Niall, because this act doesn't just apply to the financial institutions in Europe. It implies it, it applies to the third party ICT service providers that they're using. So where you've got a dependency at a third party, the financial institution has to be able to assess and manage the risks that are associated with using that third party service provider. So you could be using a service provider for data analytics purposes, for cloud, for storage, etc. And you now have to consider, is there any risk by utilising that third party company there in scope also? And then the fourth part or the fourth stream of the Act um, really relates to incident reporting and communication. And in my opinion, this is one of the, I, I really like this part of the Act because I think we'll benefit from this in Ireland um, and we'll be able to share our knowledge and other countries and financial institutions will benefit from what we see. So it's about establishing a very clear framework for how we report on incidents. And the idea here is there must be prompt and consistent reporting of any disruptions, of any potential cyber attacks, any potential incidents, with the idea being other financial institutions across Europe can be protected, which in turn protects their customers. So the benefit for us then is if there's potential issues or issues that other financial institutions across Europe are dealing with, our financial institutions in Ireland will benefit from getting the information on those events. 
That issue of reporting is absolutely fascinating because when you think about it, what's to stop a bank from issuing a completely impenetrable paper full of legalese saying, well, the following happened, uh, we didn't really do anything about it, uh, but it just being completely uh, nonsensical to somebody that that isn't uh, a solicitor. So that emphasis on clarity and reporting, uh, I think, is something really important, especially when you're dealing across borders. Yeah, 100%, Niall. And I suppose to prevent or to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, so there's a number of European supervisory agencies that have come together and they're working on the technical standards to ensure that the relevant parties are compliant with the DORA Act. And one of the standards that they're working on is the specifics around how financial institutions will need to report to ensure that we don't end up in a situation where it's a very kind of generic blank template. And like you said, somebody could go in with very complicated, um, confusing legal wording um, that, that maybe doesn't serve any purpose or value to anybody else. So the, the, there's a consultation period has been ongoing, actually, since last year. It's been divided into two parts. Um, the first part uh, concluded, I think it's, it was from June to September of last year. The second part of that um, started in December and it's due to conclude in March. And that is literally where there's a consultation process and technical standards that are very, very specific. And of course, in line with what the DORA regulation has intended to bring about will be introduced to make it very clear for everybody that's impacted by DORA how you actually comply. And I suppose, Niall, the reason why... Okay, so that the, the publication of the technical standards will make it easier for um, parties to ensure they are compliant. But the other reason why you can't just submit something, um, reports on something in a very confusing way is you will be in breach of the Act if you don't comply with technical standards. And that leaves you open to huge fines. So there's very significant sanctions if you're not in compliance with SORA. One of the things when uh, that happens, when a piece of legislation or a, a standard comes in, is that there is this moment of the sky is falling, um, that, you know, we have no idea the sort of the breadth of impact this is going to have on an industry, on individuals, on professional training, all the way across the board. DORA seems to be slightly more technically oriented. So how are IT professionals responding to it? As I said earlier, I, I think because it's not completely brand new and it's really bringing together and mandating probably best practices and um, it, it's not, I, I don't think it's a significant challenge for IT um, companies to become compliant with DORA. However, the big risk is that you're complacent. So the big risk is that you believe, oh yeah, we've done all of that already. So look, I think what we would encourage IT professionals to do is to take very much a pragmatic approach here. So probably to look at what, okay, what is already in place and how can you leverage that to become fully compliant with DORA? So it's not about starting from scratch, but you definitely do need to go through a process of mapping your end-to-end processes, including your parties, prioritising where you might have gaps, planning how you're going to become compliant, and um, obviously delivering on whatever remediation actions need to be taken and embedding those changes before the legislation fully comes into effect. 
And like the thing is, we're talking about Dora since 2020. So it's not new. So Dora was first mentioned in September 2020. Um, I think that's when it, it was first proposed. And then the act itself was published in December 2022. And obviously then financial institutions have to be fully complied from January of 2025. So we still have a bit of time to help businesses become fully compliant. So it's not all doom and gloom. What, what would be doom and gloom is if a financial institution was to be complacent and to believe because of the fact they have high standards or they're adhering to other legislation requirements that they're already in compliance with DORA because they may not be. And particularly the, the additional scope of evaluating the risk the third party ICT providers that you might be using pose to your critical processes that is potentially an area, one area I would feel that maybe a lot of financial institutions have maybe not spent as much time looking at. You've touched upon there uh, on the price of non-compliance. So with GDPR, we're used to, I think it's 4% of the global turnover. Uh, how does DORA compare? Well, it's going to sell that better, better value than the 4% for GDPR. So if an entity is found to be in violation of the Act, they can face fines of up to 2% of their annual turnover. But really, the fine is very much going to be dependent on two things. So how severe the violation of the act was, and very importantly, how cooperative the financial entity was with the relevant authorities. But for sure, financial institutions are looking at to fines of up to 2% of their global annual turnover. And then if you look at the third party ICT providers, they can be fined as well, Niall. So it's not just the financial institutions. So the third party ICT provider is absolutely in scope here and they too can be fined. So they, um, if, if they violate the Act, um, so the ESA are monitoring their compliance with the Act. So they're um, exposed to fines up to 5 million. And again, it depends on the severity of the violation and for cooperation or not with the, the relevant DSA authority. Yeah, and just to have a look again at that point of uh, of third parties, I mean, usually when there's a massive data breach, it's almost an apology. It's almost sort of, well, we were using somebody else and their systems weren't great. What were what were we to do? Um, to see that sort of come under a regulatory umbrella that actually, no, you are responsible for the third parties you deal with. That seems to be quite a step forward as well. It is, and I think it's, it's the right step forward. I mean, it should be, that is the way it should be. Like if whoever I choose to bank with, whether it's for, you know, day-to-day banking, whether it's for investments, et cetera, that's who I'm engaging in the contract for. So I expect them to be fully responsible for looking after and delivering upon the processes and the commitments that they've made to me. So I think that's a really positive step in the right direction. And it removes the likelihood of exactly as you've said, one entity blaming another. They're now both on the hook, but ultimately the financial institution has the primary primary responsibility here. They have to make sure that that assessment of their third parties, that that actually happens and the third party is on the hook as well. Just lastly, with uh, GDPR, the average person can make a complaint and say, you know, my data has been held on to far too long. There's no reason for it to be held on to at all. It hasn't been destroyed. Who actually goes forward and makes a complaint uh, under DORA, especially when it's something that, you know, on the face of things, I mean, you know, an institution might be like a duck. Things look, you know, very normal up top, whereas below that waterline, there is an awful lot of activity going on. Yeah, well, I mean, the the stream that I mentioned that's, um the ICT incident reporting and communication stream that I mentioned under the DORA Act, 
puts a lot of the responsibility actually on the financial institution to report themselves. And by not reporting themselves is a further breach. And again, it, it, that would probably be perceived as a lack of cooperation. So it isn't, I mean, the, the, the incident reporting isn't just about communicating after the fact. So the risk management element requires you to evaluate early on, are you exposed to any risks and report on same and act accordingly. So really, a lot of the onus is absolutely on the financial institution to self-report on themselves. And of course, then, if something happens and there is a breach, customers, of course, become aware and then they can, I mean, that, that there'll be no issue there in terms of the relevant authority being aware of that. It, it gets a huge amount of focus, obviously, when the consumer ends up being affected. That was Gillian Whelan, MD and Country Manager for Ireland with Imagine, who you can find at imagine-consulting.ie. That link, of course, in the show notes on your podcast app right now. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. Do check out some of the other stories online on the website that we didn't have time to chat about in the podcast today, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman looking for trillions of dollars to reinvent semiconductor manufacturing. Why 2023 was a record year for ransomware and more on the 2024 Tech Excellence Awards, which have opened for entries. You'll find all of those and more online at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday with a brand new show online and, of course, with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Do remember to share our podcast with a friend. Tell them to look up Tech Radio Ireland on Apple, Spotify or now on YouTube as well. Until next time, from myself, Dusty, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening. Take care. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Share the knowledge and invite a friend to listen. Search Apple, Spotify or YouTube for Tech Radio Ireland or listen with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Tech Radio is produced by dustpod.io for techcentral.ie. From me, Artemis, live long and prosper. Tech Radio.